Hello, man. Welcome, everybody. It's great to be with you all here in this early July. We just had July 4th yesterday. It is July 5th today, and it is the first Wednesday of the month, which means we are hosting author and researcher Gary Wayne for a continuation of our Ask Me Anything series. So really excited to get into this month's questions. We have a really great pre-made list of 12 questions that are rollovers from last month's Ask Me Anything and if you do have a question, we should have plenty of time to get to your questions. And if we do not get to them, we will put them on the pre-made list for next month's Ask Me Anything. So if you are joining us over on youtube.com slash Garcia, you can pop your questions in the chat over there. Just write like facts, not fiction did question in all caps at the beginning or put your question in all capital letters. So I know that this is a question for Brother Gary. So without further ado, let's bring Brother Gary on. How are you doing, sir? doing very very well and uh it's amazing how fast uh, a month goes by but i'm so happy to be back with uh with you and uh with the audience and hopefully we're going to answer a few questions tonight and uh looking forward to the show yeah i can kind of count the months as they go by by doing this ama every first wednesday of the month and this is our 48th episode which means we've been together for four years now doing ask me anythings and still the audience keeps amazing questions coming, and I love it. I love the insight that you're able to share, and yeah, and also the research that you're able to share. And speaking of your research, uh, could you please let us know where the audience could get a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, and maybe give us a little update on part two? Yes, the best place to get a hold of my book is the Genesis 6 Conspiracy.com. That's Genesis 6 with the number 6 Conspiracy.com. And on that website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. And uh, you can order a, a signed copy for me off the website. You go to the Buy Now page. I have a page for Canada. I have a page for the U.S. And I have a page for the rest of the world. So that's the easiest way to, to get a get a copy. And also, the easiest way, if you just want to sort of link over, I have a link over to the Kindle edition from the Buy Now page in the front page, and also over to barnesandnoble.com and over to amazon.ca and amazon.com. So it's the best way to get hold of it. Uh, I will be working uh, over the next month or two to get my website uh, refurbished and uh, and up to speed uh, to market the Genesis 6 Conspiracy Part 2, how understanding prehistory and giants helps to define end time prophecy and that uh, book is only it's a little shorter it's only 84 chapters it is through the uh, preliminary editing stage so now it's into the uh, proofreading and technical editing aspect and then we'll go into the queue after that so i need to get my website up we're looking for an august or september depending on how fast things go through july for these two processes, uh, but it's uh, all sort of systems go for a fall release and maybe even by the end of August. So for people who have not already registered with me, I, I know at a couple of conferences I was taking and including your conference, Justin, I was taking names down uh, that I will notify people when the book is has a firm release date and how you can buy a copy of the book, whether it's for me or elsewhere. And for the people who weren't able to do that, I have a new email that I've set up just so that you can contact me. You don't have to say anything on it. If you send me an email, 
I will send you a notification when I uh, have that information. And that is Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Again, Genesis 6 with the number 6 Conspiracy Part 2 at gmail.com. And all I need is email and then I will send you a notice. And I know I've got a couple hundred emails up there already. So lots of interest out there. So uh, looking forward to getting the book out. And I think Christians are really going to like this book. I really like the feel of it going through the reading and editing process and how it sort of rolls off. And if you want to know everything as a Christian about what's in the Bible, about giants, hybrid giants, angelic hierarchy, the words you need to understand for to help understand end time prophecy, it's there. And then I'll lay out a chronology using that terminology that we cover off in the first part of the book. So it is a comprehensive book. And if you think the notes are good in the first book, I have spent a lot more time on the notes. I would have liked in the editing process to left a little even more information in there but it is going to be on the same page so you can see where the comment is made and where the source is and i would have liked to have like i said a little bit more information but you'll be able to go directly to that source uh not through linking off of it but you know obviously to look it up and, and uh, ver verify that source and i'm sure that's everybody's favorite part to do is being able to look and then confirm that's that's amazing that you put that kind of research together and you know the audience that is all truth seekers just loves it and i really love it i really appreciate all of that work that you do and putting together i know putting together books are is a, a very timely process and then also responding to everyone's emails and then doing shows like this i know that you're just fully dedicated to this ministry and we definitely appreciate the time that you take every month to spend this time with us to yeah. do this ask me anything series so without any more hesitation let's jump over to the first question i need to update slideshow sorry everybody i will get those updated as gary answers this first question the first one comes from daniel sullivan Question, do you believe the day of Christ in 2 Thessalonians 2 is the rapture, or is it the day of the Lord, like many Bibles translate it? Is it one of the days of the Son of Man? Daniel tends to ask a lot of very, very good questions. Um, so another shout out to Daniel. Uh, he's also uh, an admin in in my Facebook group and has been active there and, and uh, helping uh, all the other administrators like Kay and that, well, I've been away writing the book and I'm just starting to sort of reintroduce myself to the audience. So shout out to the administrators in, in uh, the uh, Gary Wayne Genesis 6 conspiracy group uh, and uh, starting to post there again as well and answer questions. So Daniel asks a very, very good question. And uh, it's one of those things that I think is an important key to understanding the chronology of the end time. And I, I know I might say that a lot, that there are important keys, but this one is really, really sort of important because it allows you to slide, the answer allows you to slide pieces in more easily. And so in 2 Thessalonians 2.1, uh, it's talking about the, and I'm presuming it's 2-1 that he's referencing in, in, the, in the through to 2-4, but it references the coming of Jesus and that that day uh, doesn't come until the Antichrist is revealed in the temple when he crowns himself to be king. 
And it doesn't come before something called the falling away, the apostasia, uh, an apostasy, a falling away uh, from the church or the churches that would be understood whether or not it's the seven churches or all the different denominations that we have. Uh, I don't believe there's any one specific one church. Uh, I know a lot of churches like to say they are the church. Um, they may do a good job, but I think Christianity is Christianity and it's, it should not be divided. So I look at it more as the church and there will be a great falling away in all the different denominations and being seduced with the rise of Babylon before the start of the last seven years and then in the first three and a half years. And so that apostasy has to happen first and that falling away tends to happen in uh, after Babylon comes to power and shows all of its forces and capabilities. And so we get a sort of a reference to that in that falling away in Jesus or oration in the first three and a half years. And in Matthew 24, 10, where it says uh, uh, people will be have offense or offended. And it's rather sort of older type of English for what is being talked about. And that's the Greek word scandalizo. And it means to seduce away. Uh, so they're going to be seduced by Babylon. And the world is led astray. The world is seduced by Babylon through her sorcery, as, as in Revelation 18 talks about. So one of the interesting things about the passage that Daniel was referring to is, is you could overlay that onto Jesus's chronology and it fits absolutely perfectly and in the exact same chronology. And it's what I believe that all people need to do in terms of understanding prophecy. I know there's a lot of different approaches about it, but I like to put everything around Jesus's template and he lays everything out in it's a chronological order when he says the word then, which is the Greek word toda, which means exactly that then. And it's used over and over and over in Matthew 24, Luke 17, 21, and Mark 13. So that's the first thing that I wanted to underline in terms of what's being talked about in Second Thess Thessalonians. And yes, I think um, the day of the Lord is, in this case, talking about his first coming, which is the rapture. And that there's going to be another three and a half years before Armageddon. I know those days are going to be shortened, but using the information that we have, and I don't have a specific reference to how those days are being shortened. They might be the, the type of length of the days or the speed of the sun going around. Something will be changed to shorten that time because if not, all flesh would be destroyed. So... Three and a half years later from the from the information that were provided would be Armageddon. And this is going to happen when uh, the day of the Lord at uh, Jesus coming as two Thessalonians talks about is at the time of Antichrist being crowned and calling himself God in the temple. Um, and it's another two and a half years from the year of the beginning of the year of the Lord's wrath when the wrath bowls are going to be poured out. And it's one and a half years away from the year of the Lord's favor when Israel uh, lost Israel that will awaken in the last seven years. And what I call visible Judah 
uh, who uh, are around the world and probably in jails as well in concentration camps um, will be broken out of those jails and led in second exodus. So we need to understand the time frame and we need to understand that Jesus comes more than once, I think, from my research. And this is the days of the Son of Man, in multiple days as it's translated in uh, Luke. And it's one of those additional pieces of information where it's not the day, it's the days. And I think the translators were relying on another passage from the Old Testament uh, uh, and the understanding of what Jesus is planning to, to come. And I'm referring to the King James Version that when I'm talking about this passage, that's in Luke 17, 22 and 26. And it says it twice. And so from that passage, people will long for the days of the Son of Man. Um, that's how bad things are going to be before he actually comes. So when people are being seduced away, as in Matthew 24 and before the abomination, and that is before Antichrist is crowned. So in the first three and a half years, Christians are going to betray one or the other. They're going to serve Christians up to be persecuted and killed. And we're going to be giving testimony to the leaders of the world for Jesus. And we will be martyred as part of the first fruits of the first three and a half years. And as depicted in Revelation 7. So it's important to understand the chronology and that we're going to be saved from the wrath, which is in the year of the Lord's wrath with the pouring out of the bulls, the year of redemption the year of vengeance, the year of recompense. There's, there's multiple passages in the Old Testament to define that day as here in, in the uh, last year. And then there's a specific day of Armageddon as well. So you have to understand the context of the sentence and the passage that it's being, being used into. And that... Uh, you also have a passage in Hosea 9-7 that calls it uh, Jehovah's days or the Lord's Jehovah Yahweh's days of his visitation, multiple days of his visitations. And so he's coming several times. He's coming for rapture first, which is what 2 Thessalonians is talking about, that he'll come at the revealing of Antichrist uh, when he's crowned in the abomination it's just you couldn't say it more clear it's not when he's revealed perhaps at the signing of the covenant although he's not named there all the subsequent chapters referring to he and him and uh the events of antichrist he is the one who's going to sign it and begin his rise to power as 11 daniel 11 talks about in verses 20 21 to about 30 to 31 for the abomination so everything sort of fits, but understand that that is one of the days of Jesus's visitations. And that shows up in Matthew 24's chronology after the abomination at the start of the great tribulation, Philipses, just as affliction in uh, Matthew 24, eight goes back to Philipses as well. So that's the tribulation of the saints. And then there's a great tribulation not seen since the beginning of creation. And in Mark 13, 19, in the parallel cognate passage, uh, it says the same thing. It's this type of tribulation that is not seen since the beginning of creation, except it's translated as affliction. All of these words go back to the same root word, 
philipses and, and I've covered this off in, in many, many shows. So I think it's a it's a very, very good question. And it's the start of Jesus' return, first for rapture, then for second exodus, then for Armageddon. And so when you're looking at the thief of the night, uh, thief in the night narratives, understand that the thief in the night narratives are for the rapture. And then when you see thief in the night for Revelation 16 at Armageddon, it still fits the same prophetic allegory, but it's not the thief in the night, but he comes back like a thief again for Armageddon at a time when Antichrist isn't quite expecting, even though Antichrist is trying to change the times. So excellent opening question, and hopefully I've framed that in a way that provides the context of Second Thessalonians, what Daniel's talking about, and how that links into the days of Jesus' coming. Yeah, definitely great points that you make. Thank you very much for sharing that. And definitely great question. Excited to get into the next ones. This next one comes from One More for the Road. Do you have any scientific proof the Bible is inspired? For example, are there any convincing Bible codes or equidistant spacing that proves this? I think if there was uh, codes in the Bible, um, we wouldn't have been able to understand the codes. Um, I think there probably is. I think God does things in absolute perfection, but it would be at a level that um, we probably don't understand. I know there was research that was done in the 90s on the Bible codes, and they could sort of do things and point things in certain directions, but I don't think that it was able to go to a level of pulling all of that information out because you know our technology and our understanding is just not there to do it but so uh it's the word of god so one expects it to have a scientific base from a pure scientific base of the pure knowledge of the god of all things and how he created things because everything is created with his laws and so I think when you look around and you see how everything works in perfection, that's a reflection of that technology that would go back into the book as the word of God. And it would be almost like a spirit thing or a living thing. And I'm not trying to get sort of uh, overreaching on that, but it would have that sort of dimension to it, so to speak. And one would expect that that scientific capability would go multi-dimensional as well. So it's interesting about, you know, scientific proof is that um, science as we understand it today comes from the original seven sacred sciences you know, that I talk about extensively in, in, in the first book. And that's the wisdom of this world which is we're warned about the wisdom of this world, that it is skewed and it is limited. So we want to make sure that um, we're not trying to measure up against a, a, a imperfect system that has a theology, a polytheist theology behind it, because it comes out of the development of the knowledge uh, of Cain and Enoch from Adam that's used to lead people away from God and to discredit God. So science is designed to discredit God. So it's not going to look into the positives and it's not going to look to support anything, whether it's creative design of any form or anything to do with, with the Bible. So, so uh, it is something that we want to be aware of. But what we do know is that um, science 
proves the Bible every day. Uh, everything that's in it, uh, although it's trying to do the opposite, it always gets overturned because they just take an automatic negative view and then it gets reversed. So the more we learn, the more it will prove the accuracy of the Bible and probably things that are embedded into the Bible that um, will absolutely astound us, but not in sort of a mystical way, but in a miraculous sort of way, if I could put it that way. And we do know that uh, scripture is, um, you know, God breathed as second Timothy talks about. And so when it comes from the almighty, it's everlasting. It is alpha omega. It is never in contradiction. And that just as Jesus talked about in his oration with the fig tree generation, here's how powerful the word is. <clears throat> At the end of the fig tree generation, Jesus says, all of these events I've spoken of will take place in this generation. Heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus's words will never pass away because it's the word of God. And that... We can also uh, note that Jesus, and you may not look at this scientific, but he is the word of God. He is the spirit of prophecy, and he testified to the veracity of the Old Testament. And just as uh, the Holy Spirit was there to help the disciples and apostles remember the events and the words, as John 14 talks about, Again, you're not going to be able to measure that until we're, we have a technology and a scenario capable of doing such things. And then the other, what I think is the most evidential uh, scientific proof that it is God-inspired and, and God-sourced is prophecy. And I know the wisdom of the world and the seven sciences are there to deny biblical prophecy. But it was provided throughout the history of Israel and the Holy Covenant. And all of those events came through that were prophesied for the period of the prophet or for the time of Israel. And the, only those prophecies that were designed for the future um, let's say for the rebuilding of the temple, let's say for the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the, the cutting off of the Messiah, as Daniel 11 talks about in the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and the details that Jesus laid out, they are specifically marked to be fulfilled to prove scientifically without fact as those ones are fulfilled, just like all the other prophecies, including the Messiah prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he was here, these will be fulfilled. But we know that even that won't be enough for everybody. So, uh, but I think there is that proof, but it's not the wisdom of the world proof because it can't accept that truth and it has to be an anti-truth that they teach as they're going to produce an anti or false prophet and an anti-antichrist and as they have a false religion so it, the wisdom of this world is in that spirit so we we are left as christians on faith but yet we get so much from what the bible tells us that we can verify things for ourselves if we take off that cloud of the wisdom of the world so 
that's uh, that's the scientific proof that uh, I would uh, put out there. Uh, prophecy would be the best, and if indeed we are in the fig tree generation, we're gonna we're gonna be able to witness that. Yeah, really great points again, and I just wanted to read one of the comments from Stevie De Stefani. They said. I feel like a citizen in London during World War II and listening to shortwave radio to try to get updates needed for relief from the Allies fighting against the Nazis. Yeah, really uh, interesting thought. That, that That's kind of how I feel also. Thanks for uh, pointing that out and putting it that way. I didn't think about it that way before, but I can definitely see it. You know, we're in a spiritual war. Thank you for that comment. Thank you for that answer. And we'll move on to the next question that comes from The Matrix Squared. Gary, in your best estimate, what is the quickest possible time until the abomination of desolation or midpoint of the tribulation occurs, assuming all prior events were to kick into gear as of today? Yes. Yeah, so I would say that you would... And, and I don't think we're there, but let's just say everything was in place as the uh, as matrix squared is is laying the question out. We would require, I think, seven and a half years uh, to get to the abomination. So for everything to be kind of in place, you have to have the rise of Babylon and you need to, I think, take into account Revelation 2.10, where there's going to be 10 years of tribulation. You have the tribulation of three years with the rise of Babylon, you have three and a half years of tribulation um, exerted by Babylon um, in that happens before the abomination and then you have the great tribulation that leads to uh, the wrath bowls and the year of the Lord's wrath uh, so that leaves you three years before and three and a half years because we have not seen the rise of Babylon. And so that would be where I think we start moving out of the, the beginning of the sorrows and marching towards the opening of the seals. So no matter what, I think uh, where we are is there's a, there's still a ways to go before we see uh, the abomination. And I think we have... We're going to have to see those false prophets of Babylon that's going to be prophesying these prophecies of doom uh, that will be designed to put fear amongst the people of the world to convert to their religion or be destroyed from the face of the earth. It'll be the Babel syndrome uh, all over again because it's the Babylon religion. One expects that it'll be the same sort of theology that we have to band together uh, under one leader and one uh, religion as they did under Nimrod uh, and one mystical religion and Okian mysticism from, from before the flood at Babel for fear of being destroyed from the face of the earth. And I think that fear came from the Aboriginal uh, Raphaim that were already out there in great numbers after the flood. So, yeah, I think that would be sort of the minimum. Um and I would encourage people not to get ahead of end-time chronology. You know, we have some big events yet to to be shaping up. We don't have world government, although it's being worked on. We don't have a universal religion, although it's being worked on. And we don't see the sacrifices on a wing or an extremity or an overspreading of the temple that's been put in place by 
the rising Antichrist who negotiates the covenant for the last seven years. So we're still assembling that in the beginning of sorrows. That's wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, pandemics, and or, I mean famine and earthquakes. And I think those are, are beginning to rise. And I think a lot of these contrived disasters will come through the war aspect of it. And I think we're we're in for a rough ride as uh, we see those ten kings start to form their empires and other ki- other places around the world scramble to assemble their empires, uh, lest they be swallowed up by rising empires like China and or Russia and or possibly India. Awesome, thank you very much for that answer and really great question again. Next question comes from Yvette. What did Yeshua mean when he said to run to the mountains in the last days? I'm presuming that Yvette is talking about the account in uh, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and uh, the book of Luke 17 and 21. I think she's referring to Judea fleeing to the wilderness or to the mountains um, at the time of the abomination. So when Judah flees, they know this is the time that Daniel prophesied. This is the time of Jacob's trouble. This is the time of the great tribulation. This is the time of the uh, time of trouble talked about in Daniel 12. And Jacob's trouble is Jeremiah 37. And 37 is talking about the time of the second exodus. But Jacob will be saved from that. But they're going to go through tribulation. And that word trouble is the Hebrew word sarah. And it's used for trouble in, in, in Jacob's trouble and in Daniel 12, 1 as well. And so it's the cognate word for philipses, for tribulation and affliction, that's used for that same time frame and passage in Matthew 24, 21 and Mark 13, 19, right after the abomination. And so we get that sort of nexus of that of that time point where things really begin to sort of heat up. And so Judea is going to flee from protection from the Antichrist and from Satan. They know this is the time of their trouble. And they're going to flee from that and uh, as quickly as they can. And that's why you get the descriptions of, you know, pray that, you know, the the, the women aren't pregnant at that time because you're gonna have they're gonna have to flee in a hurry. So we get some more context of this in Revelation 12. And again, that that's at the midpoint when Michael stands and you have the war in heaven. It's the same time, just as Daniel 12, where Michael stands, it's talking about the last three and a half years and the time of the abomination and the time that Antichrist comes to power. And so is Revelation 12. Yeah, and uh, Antichrist is going to be part of storming heaven in that passage uh, in the war in heaven. And that's reflected in Daniel 8.10, where Antichrist will storm into heaven and throw down some of the starry host as part of this war in Revelation 12. And Antichrist has will receive the power of Satan, as two Thessalonians talks about, with, the, with his crowning, and probably just before. So again, you see the nexus point of, of these events. And that something else happens between Daniel um, you know, 11... Um, 
21 to, to 31 at the end. 31 is the time of the abomination. And what happens is just before the abomination in, in verse 30, Antichrist is going to return to Jerusalem to impose indignation on the Holy Covenant. When it's talking about the old Holy Covenant in the Old Testament, it's talking about Judah and lost Israel, who will have awakened and are already in prisons uh, by Babylon, uh, as I would understand it. And if they're only awakening at this point, lost Israel, they're still going to be um, attacked by Antichrist. And we see that in, in Revelation 12, where all those who are going to hold to the testimony of Jesus and God are going to be persecuted by Antichrist and the dragon. And so this is also implying a reconciliation of Israel and Judah to accepting their Messiah and thus um, fulfilling what Revelation 12 is talking about. And so this word indignation is the Hebrew word zoam, and it means enraged, abhor, and um, <clears throat> to be filled with, with anger. And so he returns to vent his anger on the Holy Covenant. And so Judea is fleeing that abomination in Jerusalem. Where Antichrist is, who has already moved in his armies, as Daniel 11 and Luke, the book of Luke talk about, and has already killed the two witnesses as uh, at least being part of the one who comes up out of the abyss. Of the abyss. I think at, by that time, he is also uh, in league and probably avatared by uh, Azazel, Abaddon, and Apollyon, as, as I look at them as being the same for the leaders of the watchers who come out of, out of the abyss. And so... Jerusalem, uh, the Judean people are going to flee to the wilderness to be protected by God. And as Re Revelation 12 talks about for three and a half years. And on the way, as the book of Isaiah talks about, there's going to be this overflowing of a river, of the Euphrates River, as just as Revelation 12 talks about the spewing out of his mouth of a river to destroy fleeing Judah. But God will protect it and it will protect Judah. Uh, and Israel in the second exodus on the wings of eagles, just as that's the same language that was used in the first exodus. So that's why Judea is fleeing, is fleeing to the mountains, because this is a prophecy targeted at the visible southern kingdom of Judea. And they need to leave quickly because they will be slaughtered en masse by Antichrist in his enraged anger. So... Uh, if that's what was referring, being referred to by Yvette, that's what I think is going on in that set of events there. A really great question and a really uh, interesting points that you bring up. Thank you so much for sharing that. Move on to the next question that comes from Michael Fisher. Did Moses have two wives, Zipporah and the other, the king of Ethiopia's daughter? Very, very good question by uh, Michael, and uh, I think what he's referring to is Numbers 12, uh, 1 through 10, 
with that question because Zipra is the Midianite uh, wife that he takes after being exiled uh, from after Moses is exiled from Egypt. But in in Numbers 12, he is being um, pushed back by Miriam and um, and and uh, <clears throat> yeah, those rock in my voice and Moses's uh, um, brother and I'm struggling to come up with his name right now. Um, Aaron, there we go, flashback. And uh, they're giving him a hard time about, about uh, the Ethiopian woman as, as seemingly he's, that he's married as his second wife. And we don't really get much more on that out of the Bible. So Ethiopian um, derives from H3569, Kush, and Kush or Kushi means black and not Ethiopian. Not Ethiopian as being um, anywhere else, but sort of specifically, as I understand it, from the same sort of Ethiopia that the Queen of Sheba would be from. Uh, but nonetheless, considered an African nation and, and probably the same people that were part of Upper Egypt. Um, but we don't get any more from that sort of biblically, so it's kind of a, a mystery because we don't get a name and we don't get a framework where or how he would have had another wife. Whereas with Abraham, um, we get those uh, names and we get those um, we get the context and the events, whether it's, whether it's Hagar or it's Keturah. And Keturah is uh, she produces a son, Media, who's going to produce the Midianites. That is, Moses is going to get Zipporah as as a wife from after leaving Egypt. So, there is another source though that sheds some light on this. It's not biblical, but I'll, I'll I'll share it because it's by Josephus, who wrote the history of the Jewish people after the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple by Rome becomes a later Cephas apparently prophesies that and uh, he is uh, taken into um, the emperor's, emperor's house and finance to copy down the history of Israel so it's not lost to the world and so Josephus has an account of Moses in, in Antiquities book 2 um, chapter 10 and he names this wife as a Tharbis or Tharbis or Tarbis, depending on how you want to pronounce that. And that's spelt as it's transliterated into the book of Josephus, T-H-A-R-B-I-S. And uh, Josephus says Moses married Tarbis before marrying Zipporah. And that she was the daughter of a king in Cush of Saba city, uh, a king of Ethiopia in Saba city. So this is happening while Moses is leading armies, according to Josephus, and conquering Upper Egypt. And in that whole campaign, he meets uh, Tarbis, and she falls madly in love with him, and they have a consum consummative married, and she's of royal bloodlines from you know the daughter of the king of Saba. So. That's the only account that I can attribute to, but whether or not there's some Jewish legend in there or not, it does match well with what 
is being referenced in Numbers 12, 1 through 10, as the Ethiopian woman. Um, and biblically, we don't get any more from that. So I would say that uh, Josephus is probably relaying a piece of information that um, uh, wasn't found to be needed to be essential in the book and uh, was left out. But it's interesting, though, and I love this about the Bible. It's not afraid to address some of the things that some you know non-believers would look at as warts. I mean, we're, we're we need to sort of understand that the you know even the great patriarchs um, were human, and uh, they had past lives before their conversion, and th things like that go into play. And the Bible doesn't run away from those inconvenient details. It actually puts it out there because it's part of our human nature. And in this case, we're not told. Um, whether or not Moses has taken the wife with them, all we're told in numbers is as there is this conversation going about and a disagreement about uh, the second wife of, of, of Moses that was from Josephus's account, probably the first uh, wife. Uh, one presumes that he didn't take one again afterwards, but again, we don't know. So, I think that's what uh, Michael is talking about, and that's all the information that I'm familiar with it about. I'd have to do some significant legwork to go deeper, but I'm familiar with Josephus, so I referenced that uh, fairly quickly and, and pulled that up for the show tonight. That's a great reference. Thank you for sharing that one. Our next question also comes from Michael. Does the clowns or trans come from the Nephilim or fallen angels? Very interesting question for sure. So let's uh, start with the clowns. And uh, I think people might be aware of a few years ago and it was sort of all over the internet where you have these evil, crazy clowns and things like that. And uh, we would be remiss to think that there's not some sort of occult uh, background to this and history to this. Um, clowns are not, and just, you can look at a clown and you, you and say, Hey, something's not right with this. Uh, and they've been used to uh, entertain children. And I think to ultimately sort of, you know, implant some occult kind of seeds, but that's just my personal sort of opinion. So why I come to that is that. You know, you have these, this crazy red hair for the most part. Red hair is a Nephilim trait. So is blonde hair and black hair. But red hair is one of the significant traits. And biblically with the Horim. And you get this really pale colored skin, which again is typically understood as a Nephilim and Raphaim trait. Very, very pale skin. Hori skin. Uh, just as Horim goes back to white bread and pale white and words like that. So it has that sort of connection back to, to, to giants. And that the clown makeup that is put on has even deeper meanings in terms of the spiritual kind of sense in the occult. And so... It is akin to the theater mask that is covered up 
over the face in old Greek dramatic plays and Roman uh, classic plays as well. And an older history than that. And it's even more prevalent when you look at the theater mass you know, of old Taoism, uh, uh, the pre precursor of Taoism as we understand it today. And those are sort of demonic looking, it has that same white background. Um, but now it has all of these crazy colors that are very demonic looking. And in satires and in, and that word not coincidentally is rooted in satire as in a devil goat god. And dramas and tragedies of the great classics, the actors were portraying Nephilim past. Raphaim past, bloodlines past of these famous people, and that it was a metaphor for holding the spirit that was within them to become sort of one with that spirit to portray that character. And so it's hiding who is inside and so it's showing what is now outside so that's a demonic possession sort of allegory where you have uh, a disembodied spirit of a giant that is going to you know possess a human and there's two hosts in there and the mask in this case is representing that demon coming to the surface and being in control and being visually speaking outwards and that whether or not the host is suppressed or it is being um, cooperative and wanting this possession, that's what it's really sort of sort of representing. And it's the counterfeit of the avatar avatar effect where at least we're told there's a symbiotic relationship between, let's say, Buddha and Vishnu, where you receive this additional power and information um, that would be so much more than what a demon could provide, even if it was in part symbiotic and i don't think it is because i think once that demon comes in it just it just totally sort of takes over this is understood as the same thing as the pale white markings in the day of the dead celebrations this is the same type of pale white skin and as in the allegory of the vampires uh, and who seek immortality of uh, by drinking blood so it's definitely connected to Nephilim, Raphaim, and their disembodied spirits. And this is the trickster spirit, as it's known in the occult. And in the trickster spirit, there's two different classifications again. Just as in the Quran, you have the jinn, like Iblis, which is their word for Satan, and uh, another demonic jinn, which would be similar to the genies, which would be a demon spirit. And so in the trickster spirits again you would have at the god level and there are trickster gods i won't go through the whole pantheon of it but it's a common sort of occult knowledge where you have these trickster uh and i have a i have a, a document on this as well if people want it i did a posting on facebook a few years ago on it and you have this uh avatar avatar effect with the trickster spirit and then you have the trickster demon spirits which are a lot more let's say agenda orientated and and evil so this is definitely occult teaching in plain sight now we also see this in 
the court gestures that were permitted without explanation within the royal courts of Europe and the bloodlines. Nobody has satisfactorily said why you needed a fool or a jester who has the same type of clown white face in the court that's designed there to make the king laugh. It's a rouge. They're there because those kings don't worship no matter, well, not, I wouldn't say 100%, but most of the kings did not worship the God of the Bible. They were they worshiped the Baalim or the God of their choice. And they received their power through the divine right of rule, just as King James did, uh, and answer to the Baalim. Mighty Prince James, the mighty Gabor Prince James. Certainly permitted uh, something good for the English language and Christians as a whole for the printing of the Bible, but still he would have had a court gesture. <laughs> and uh, so if the court gesture, um, I'll get into that in a second. Court gesture is a wizard. It is a priest. And it is there in disguise and as a counselor to the king because that's his true belief system. Now, if the as the uh, mythology goes in it, if they were not able to make the king laugh, they did something to this court gesture. Jester, and what really is the case is if the jester didn't give good advice or didn't predict the things that to come true that the king wanted, they would punish the priest. And what they would do is they would take this white, brightly painted court jester, take a knife and slit its mouth upwards to look like a uh, infamous character uh, in the Batman series, which again is based on superheroes, based on Nephilim and Raphaim. And in this case, Batman uh, is based on a character and giants out of the Popol Vuh with the Kishamaya, uh, with the house of Zabalba which were bird-faced demigods. And one of those, so it's like an Anunnaki, um, only an Anunnaki of Earth, so it would be the Tengu warriors or priests in Southeast Asia. In this case, there's a separate branch of the Zibalba. It's called the House of Kamazots. And this is the House of Bat, as it's defined. And I have some information on that if people want it. And if you Google Kamazots, C-A-M-A-Z-O-T-Z, -Z, you'll get this outfit that pops up that looks like the outfit that Batman wears. And where I'm coming to is that whether it's Superman uh, and, you know, who is, you know, based on the House of El, Durel, Jor-El, uh, it's another superhuman. It's a Nephilim and it's totally embedded with occult history and, and religion. And so the Joker in this Batman series, who's like an evil giant, as opposed to a good giant like Hercules, you have good giants, you have evil giants, you have black magic, you have white magic, you have good witches, you have evil witches, and on and on and on in the duality and the micro level of, of polytheism. We know them today it is common and people don't know who they're really talking about, white hats and black hats. Um, neither one of them have our interest in mind. They all have the same agenda. They all worship the same pantheon of gods. But 
that's the depiction of Joker in the Batman series is, is a court gesture who has had his mouth slit. And so it is based on the Nephilim. And just as with the Day of the Dead, that's when the spirits of the dead cross over as travelers through portals in occult religions all over the world, you know, as part of that celebration that goes right through to November 11th. And that day should strike you as, as being not coincidental because that's the celebration of all of the dead or the honoring of all the dead. Uh, um, on Remembrance Day for World War One, uh, that was the eleventh hour, eleventh day um, of. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, it was the uh, the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month. That is eleven three times eleven, which is the uh, sacred number of of the occult. And that uh, poppies were worn, and it's got to do with the celebration of the dead. As you go back into uh, prehistory as well. So all of this is always interwoven to transmit. I have a document on this as well on November 11th and poppies and if people want it. So second part is similar. Yes, it's kind of based on that ideology of um, Nephilim or fallen angels and fallen angels is sort of the upper level and the lower level or the junior would be the, the Nephilim with their disembodied spirits. So think of it as spirits who, who have the ability to change their gender. So and what I mean by that is, is fallen angels had the ability of take, taking any form that they chose and any gender that they chose. And then in, this, and then in some of the degraded watchers, the Sair, Perry watchers, as you take those that compounded word back to Hebrew, uh, and a devil goat god, uh, which used to be a seraphim watcher, sometimes they're depicted as with Baphomet or Azazel as being showing physical characteristics of, of, of both. And the concept is is basically this, and I'll wind this up as we're going to commercial, is, is that they can transfer a spirit in their technology to a slave or an oikotarian, and that's what they're basing their doctrine on. All right, thank you, Brother Gary. We will be right back after this short break. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's great to be with you all again this evening for a continuation of our Ask Me Anything series with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Uh, Brother Gary, are you still with us? I am, and uh, ready for the second half. Excellent. All right, so we will, I think we were done with the last question, is that right? Yes. Okay, great. So the next question, well, before we get back into the questions, how about for the new listeners, could you please let us know where we could grab a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy? The best place to go is my website. That's Genesis 6 Conspiracy with the number 6conspiracy.com. And on the website, I have a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters. If you're looking to purchase a copy, you can go to the Buy Now page, and on the Buy Now page, you have options. One is to buy a signed copy from myself, and so I have a page for Canada, I have a page for the U.S., and a page for the rest of the world. So if you want a signed copy, that's how you get a signed copy. If you want a digital version, you can link over from the Buy Now page to 
uh, Kindle and order the Kindle version. And if you wanted to check out the pricing uh, um, and availability at other locations, you can link over to barnesandnoble.com from the buy now page, also to amazon.ca and to amazon.com. So that's the fastest, easiest way to get a uh, hold of my book. And it's also available on most online bookstores. And so um, just Google it and you should be able to find it rather easily. And if not, get hold of me. I'll sell you a signed copy. Awesome. I definitely suggest everybody checking that book out if you have not already done so it's a great book and we're definitely looking forward to part two so let's uh, continue on with the great questions if you do have a question please do write it in the chat over at youtube.com slash zen garcia in the live stream chat there i am monitoring and adding all the questions to the list to be answered after the pre-made list tonight and if we do not get to your questions tonight we will roll them over to be Part of the pre-made list for next month. So really great questions. And I want to move on to the next one that comes from Douglas. Question, what is visible Judah? And if you could, I wanted to add on what is invisible, invisible Judah? Yeah, I don't have, I think that's referencing to what I like to say. So there is not an invisible Judah, uh, but there is an invisible um, Israel. So... For lack of a better way of describing it, I like to say visible Judah when I'm talking particularly about prophecy because it's the southern kingdom that I'm referencing to. And in biblical history, there was a splitting after King Solomon into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And Israel was lost to history and into the Gentile nations uh, completely after violating the laws of the Holy Covenant uh, to a point where they were going to be punished according to the curses of the Holy Covenant. And so they will not become visible again until they're called by name and they awaken, uh, I think, in the last seven years. And I think specifically by the 144,000 that begin their preaching of the gospel and the waking up of the lost tribes of Israel in preparation for um, second exodus that happens in the year of the Lord's favor um, at the beginning of uh, the year before uh, the year of the Lord's wrath. So the visible Judah is the Judean Southern kingdom that repented at that time and received a reprieve from the curses of the covenant. But then they backslid again, and then they received the curses of the covenant, but they were not lost. They were just wiped down to a remnant and exiled in Babylon uh, and were permitted to come back so that prophecy could be fulfilled uh, with the bringing about of the second temple and the Messiah. But again, they rejected their Messiah, they violated their holy covenant and suffered the curses again and were dispersed throughout the world, but not lost again. And I think that is so that when we see them in the land of the covenant, as we do today, is when they declared their independence in 1947, whether or not people think they're all 100% Jewish people or not, 
that's not really the point. Uh, there is a remnant there at, at a minimum that were prophesied to be in the land of the covenant in the, in the end time and to get control of Jerusalem again and to flee from Jerusalem and to be protected by God for three and a half years and also protected by God in the Gog War uh, just after the opening of the abyss and probably just before the midpoint of the of the last seven years that sets up the counterfeit Armageddon for Antichrist to uh, move his armies into Jerusalem and set up the abomination. So that's who visible Judah is. And I just say that as opposed to the lost tribes and whether or not, again, people agree with me that uh, there's any remnant of Judah left or not. I think there is. And I, and I believe uh, we're going to see that prophecy fulfilled in the fig tree generation, which is an allegory for the Southern kingdom when they take root in the land of the Bible and they start to bear fruit again. So um it's all yet to be played out so when i talk about visible judah that is the southern kingdom versus the lost tribes i understand now thank you very much for sharing that great question great answer moving on the next question comes from linda sims martin why was daniel not thrown into the fiery furnace with the other three of the four of them oh that's that's a great question for sure and Daniel 3 is when um, this happens, uh, Shidrach, Meshach, uh, Abnego, or also known as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in, in the Hebrew language. Um, and they're thrown for not worshiping uh, before the great statue that Nebuchadnezzar has erected for himself. And again, as an antichrist-like figure, this is an antichrist type image that he's projecting and he wants everybody in the world in his empire to, to bow down and worship. But Daniel is not sent to this furnace. And so the question is, is why? And so I think the answer lies in the chapter before, in Daniel 2, in the metallic empire prophecy and it's a dream that nebuchadnezzar has that so disturbs him um, he has to find an answer to the question but nobody in all of his realm can answer the question but daniel is able to do so and so when daniel uh, um, resolved to the satisfaction of Nebuchadnezzar, what the dream meant, and probably in ways that only, you know, the God of gods could have known in, in Nebuchadnezzar's mind and in, in my mind, that Nebuchadnezzar, what he does in Daniel 2.46 is, is he falls on his face and he worships Daniel. And he commands, Nebuchadnezzar commands offerings and incense or oblations to Daniel. Because, as he says, Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel's God was the God of gods and the king of kings. This was somebody who was sent and representing the king of kings and God of gods that had to be the greatest God in the world 
in all creation. Beyond creation, whatever that means. And so Daniel was uh, promoted by Nebuchadnezzar in verse 48 and, and made a great man or a ruler over, over Babylon and then permitted Daniel to have Shadrach, Meshach, and, uh, and uh, Abinezhu, and as probably Abinezhu, as it should be pronounced, um, work as admis administrators for the Babylon, and Daniel decided to stay at the court. So some people will say that Daniel was probably sent on assignment, but that's not what Daniel 2 says, that he remained at the court or the gate of the king. That's how powerful and respectful the king of kings of beast empires, of the gold empire, the lion empire, respected Daniel and the fear he held um, for the God of, of the Bible. And so it wasn't that Daniel was sent away on assignment, as some people might say. Um, and for some reason, um, he was exempted based on his new status. And I think it's just totally out of fear that Daniel or that Nebuchadnezzar was not going to force Daniel to worship him after he worshiped Daniel. And I think it's as simple as that. And he worshiped Daniel because he feared the God of the Bible. Um, so I don't think it's the standard explanations. I think it's right there in Daniel 2. And then we get the uh, the furnace and we're given the pretext for why Daniel wouldn't be submitted to the fiery furnace. A really great explanation. Thank you for that one. Next question is a little bit long. So maybe grab some water while I read through this one. This one comes from Courtney. Is there a third world age after the millennial reign of Christ? Always thought that after the millennium reign of Christ, it's the judgment of God to all, and then there will be a new heavens and new earth, along with new Jerusalem coming down to earth, and we believers would all live happily ever after with Christ. Is that not correct? What is the difference between the second world age and the third world age? Is the third world age going to perish too, or is that eternity? For us believers yeah i think the simple answer is answered by courtney at the end of at the end of her question is is that is a completely new heavens and a new earth and that is eternity and so you have the age that we're in right now um, that is still being played out and then we have a new age if you could look at, at it from that perspective at least the millennial age is how i would um presented as an age that is set aside from the age that is ruled by fallen angels by the assembly of gods um, on Mount Hermon, um, ruling over the 70 nations. So Psalms 82 and Deuteronomy 32 is where I put those two together. And then you're going to have a thousand years of reign in stark contrast to what has happened since the time of Adam. And so this age, even though it is we get to have Jesus with us, we get the resurrected saints, we get this interaction between heaven and earth, you have a rebellion at the end of that millennium 
when Satan is released from the abyss. And again, from descendants of Gog and Magog, indicating there's Gentile nations um, that will be populating the millennium. So some survivors of the Gentile nations, not just um, Israel and Judah, who survive into uh, the millennium after the second exodus and being protected by God, as we talked about previously. So I think there's a lesson to be learned there that in that whole playing out is that even though we were res we will be resurrected um, before the millennium uh, to be like angels and then to judge the angels for the crimes against humanity and the crimes against creation, that we are not all that dissimilar to a certain degree from the angels who knew God intimately and rebelled. And we have to choose um, to gain our immortality, unlike angels who were created immortal, uh, through faith. And that um, when we have the same opportunity as humans, uh, the ones who live in the millennial reign, under Jesus, under all of the reigning ones that reign with him who didn't accept the mark of the beast and were beheaded for uh, their loyalty to, to Jesus, they're going to rebel. And so oh, humans will have that intimate contact, just as angels did. And yet humans will rebel as well. So I think that's a humility um, factor for humans before we go into eternity. And between the time of the end of the, the millennium and eternity, you get the judgment of the dead. So it's a, it's a resurrection of the dead. So we have the sequence of the resurrections uh, that I've talked about in, in detail that include the resurrection of Israel and Judah for judgment in that year of the Lord's favor. Um, and the time of second exodus, that's recorded in Ezekiel 37 in the first part. And then you get the exodus aspect um, led uh, by, by King David to form uh, and led by Jesus, as Micah 5 and 2 talk about, to bring Israel back together under, under one staff. And then you have the resurrection of those who refuse the mark of the beast and refuse to worship Antichrist and refuse to worship um, Satan, who were beheaded for that. And so uh, the judgment of the dead are those who um, are con you know, considered still asleep but need to be resurrected and will fulfill uh, the judgment aspect as to whether or not they will uh, somehow survive into eternity or suffer the second death. So that's kind of, I guess how I would say it is, is sort of completing sort of the, the last ends of the details. And so you have Satan that is cast into the lake of fire. You previously had the angels at the beginning of the millennium who would have been sent to the lake of fire, as Daniel, or as the book of Matthew talks about. And the false prophet and antichrist were sent to the lake of fire at and time of Armageddon, those who placed the mark were sent or took the mark and worship Satan and Antichrist go to the lake of fire to be tortured forever, as the book of Revelation talks about. And so now you have that last resurrection of those people who will be resurrected to eternity. If they're somehow find a way, then God finds a way, as Romans 2 
might leave that door open to um, and or to the second death and then you move into eternity so it's not a third age of this world because it's a new heavens and a new earth now we don't know how far that extends because heaven can mean within the firmament it can it can uh, mean within the firmament and out what's outside the firmament so as far as uh, you know is the stars and the and then uh, go beyond the firmament and it can also mean heaven so i don't think there's a new spiritual realm that's created but i think there's a new physical heavens outside the firmament and a new heavens within the firmament that are created um, so that it will be something that's new that is prepared for eternity and what we were provided in our new bodies as resurrected uh, bodies like Jesus had that can now go between heaven and earth as Jesus did uh, in a physical body, which was something that wasn't before the res resurrection of Jesus. So, um, yeah, I would make it just, just as a distinction on that. It's not the, the third age of this world. If you had uh, another age of this world, it would be um, what was done at the time of creation by fire if there was a gap between genesis 1 1 and 1 2 to me that would be the first age if there is that and i think that's a possibility and then the second age is uh with the with the renewal of the earth and that line of thought in days one through six and then you would have the third age within this world in the millennial reign and then off to eternity but as the question is posed in it's not the third age of this world, but it is another age, which is eternity. So I think you answered your question uh, right at the end, Courtney. So well done. A really great question. I appreciate all of the good questions that are coming through. Please do, if you have any questions, write them there in the chat. And I am still monitoring there and adding them to the list for live questions from tonight. All right, our next question comes from Truthseeker in his service. Why was the tribe of Dan replaced with the tribe of Manasseh, as shown in Revelation chapter 7? It's a bit of a mystery, and we really won't know, I guess, until that time, but we can probably take some hints out of information that we do know about the Bible. So I think that the tribe of Dan um, has a bit of a, history and i think it begins with them moving to the mount Hermon region and i think uh, a lot of danites um, started to follow the balim uh, as what a lot of israel did but not in the same way in consistency as the tribe of dan and i think that there's a relationship in the end time with Dan to perhaps um, Babylon and the religion and perhaps um, some sort of connection, whether it's bloodline or whatever, in terms of could be the false prophet. I don't know, but there might be a relationship there with the coming Antichrist as well. So I think Dan is purposefully not represented in the 144,000 that are sealed by uh, God. And 
I think that is 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 likely the reason. Um, that's my speculation as I put together details from the Old Testament. Uh, that Dan is, uh, you know, when you're looking at in uh, the book of Genesis for the end time prophecies for the tribes, and then with Moses, is Dan is looked at one who trips up the rider, uh, and I think Dan causes backsliding and and in uh, corruption of polytheism into ancient israel and probably into the end time as well so i would look for dan to be playing whether or not we can recognize them as day night or not uh, to be playing a major role with the coming of the end time and particularly the religious aspect and i think that's why they don't um they've lost their right to have uh, part of, you know, 12,000 of their firstborn to be waking lost Israel to bring Israel back and Judah back into the Holy Covenant in the last three and a half years and to recognize the Messiah because the Danites, I think, will be sort of anti-Messiah, uh, Jesus in particular, um, as we start to roll into that. And Israel and Judah are going to need to accept and do, and I think they they will accept Jesus as their Messiah, just as we get passages on mourning uh, for the uh, the son that they pierced um, in the Old Testament, and the mourning that we're talk what we're shown in Matthew 24 as well. So I think that's a sign that they're going to be recognizing who their messiah was and that's part of the reconciliation and the judgment uh, in preparation as part of the bride for the supper of the lamb uh, in the year of the lord's wrath excellent thank you very much for that explanation we have two more questions left in the pre-made list before we get into live questions so this one comes from Michael 1380. Is the temple that's described in Ezekiel different than the New Jerusalem in Revelation? And if so, does Gary think they occur at different times within the timeline? Yeah, I think uh, Ezekiel is the t temple uh, of the millennium. And uh, it's, a, it's to be used by Israel. And this is the age that's promised for Israel. Uh, so that it'll be the temple that Jesus uh, uh, rules from, as will uh, Israel, as will one presumes those who uh, were resurrected, um, who didn't take the mark of the beast and didn't worship Satan and didn't worship Antichrist, and opposed to what would be in eternity. I think that'll be something completely different. So when I look at uh, the Old Testament prophecies, they tend to have a sort of a constant, so to speak, a pattern that is talking about the fulfillment of the Holy Covenant as it pertains to Israel and their reward uh, through the curses of the covenants versus the blessings of the covenants where things would have played out differently had they kept the Holy Covenant. So my gut feeling is, is that uh, this is the temple of of the um, millennium, and it's marked in Ezekiel as you know being very Israel sort of driven in the representations and the descriptions of that temple designed for the, the twelve tribes of Israel. A really interesting question. Thank you for that answer. 
All right, last question from the pre-made list for tonight comes from End is here 17. God scattered the people at the Tower of Babel as they were working together to attack God and confuse their he confused their languages. Today, is it going against that judgment by having the world learn one common language again? Yeah, I think we we really sort of need to understand what Ecclesiastes is talking about when it says nothing is new under the sun. What has been will be again. And I think that goes before the flood and after the flood. And certainly the reference that we get after the flood, because I think you would have had a similar sort of scenario before the flood, just we don't get sort of named characters as what we get coming after the flood. So at Babel and Nimrod, I mean, you have an Antichrist type figure. You have a mystical religion that he's imposing on the world. He is a tyrant type of character. Um, and in the, the occult mythologies, he is uh, threatening God and threatening to uh, go to heaven and kill God if he gets out of line again, just as Antichrist will do. And Daniel 8.10 will try and storm heaven, just as Satan tried to do that. So again, it's that common sort of theme that there's nothing new un under the sun. And so at Babel, you did not have more than one language. So you had the confusion of the languages and a disbursement of the people to buy time so that all the names written in the book of life from before creation for the period till the end time um, are fulfilled and the age of the Gentiles and the numbers of the Gentiles can be fulfilled as well by inference in that statement. So. It was not designed to resolve the issue. Neither was the flood designed to resolve the issue. God is Alpha, Omega, Alpha and Omega, and Jesus is Alpha and Omega. They knew the beginning from the end, and they knew how things would play out. So they were just buying the time because the fallen angels were taking regular revenges to try and ensure humankind would not reach their destiny to be raised up like angels and then to judge the angels for the crimes against humanity and the crimes um, against creation and that they obviously didn't know everything because as the book of corinthians talks about first corinthians is that had the princes of this world the angels of this world understood that there was going to be a resurrection they would have ensured that jesus was not crucified as and conversely they had ensured he would be killed and they thought that that would be the end of it and their rebellion would be justified and humankind may end up in the dustbins of of what would have been non-existence with their names remembered no more just as they tried to have israel destroyed from the face of the earth to prevent the messiah from coming um so again this is all sort of consistent so we're going to see the same type of thing roll out in the end time with the Babylon religion, understanding Babylon is rooted uh, in the Hebrew word Babel. And so it's going to be that kind of religion. It's going to be that kind of scenario. And we're going to have seemingly one language, whether or not everybody actually speaks the same language or there's translators or it's as King James may have uh, uh, 
plans with along with um, Francis Bacon the English language uh, as they design as Bacon designed the language to be the uh, the universal language to bring about the new Babel the new Babylon. Um, so it's been part of the occult dream all the way through to have that exact same scenario. So, so today, you know, we're seeing that march towards global government, global religion to common language, and all of that leads to is rebellion against God, which we'll see by the time of Revelation 12 and Daniel 12 um, and Daniel 8. And it just fulfills that what was will be again. Nothing is new under the sun. So yes, common language is a sign of the end time, and we are marching in that direction. We're not there yet, but we're certainly marching in that direction. And who knows? The common language may be the technology language that is being you know, going to be used and being the main factor. We don't know. But I would still look for a sort of a verbal language as being the common one as well. But again, I'm open to the fact that it's like Star Trek where you have that translator aspect. So, and that translator aspect would be, you know, a forewarning as to how they're going to bring about that one language. All right. Welcome to the end of the pre-made list, everybody. That was a really great list of questions as it always is and definitely a great uh, hour and a half of answers. I'm excited to move on to our pop quiz time. This is time where we're taking questions from the live chat. It is a first come, first serve. So the people that asked the questions at the beginning of the show tonight, your questions are getting ready to be answered. If you do ha still have questions that you did not ask yet, please do put them in the chat over at youtube.com slash Garcia on the live stream chat there. And I will add them to the list. If we do not get to them tonight, we will roll them over to be the pre-made list on next month's Ask Me Anything with Brother Gary. All right. So we have a really uh, great amount of questions, really interesting questions. And let's get into it. So Facts Not Fiction asked the first question from tonight. Why is the KJV translation of Daniel 9.27 slightly different than almost all other Bible versions? For example, the second time he appears is one instead. This greatly changes the meaning. And should I go over and read it potentially? Yes, we should be reading that for uh, the audience so that they know what he All right, might be talking about. Let me pull up specifically the KJV first, and then I'll read a different version. It says... Daniel 9.27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Right, let's pull up a different translation. All right. I, I don't like the NIV, of course, but we'll pull it up for research's sake. Same chapter, same verse, Daniel 9, 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. All right, so question again was, why is the KJV translation of Daniel 9, 27 slightly different than almost all other Bible versions? For example, the second time he appears is one 
instead? Yeah, very, very, very good question again. And the first thing that I would uh, inform people of is that the King James Version Bible was translated um, from the Masoretic text uh, for the Old Testament, and then it did use some other uh, Greek versions for, for reference, but essentially was used from the Masoretic text. Later versions like NASB or NIV and other uh, more modern English translations in a lot of cases translated from manuscripts that had not yet been discovered, um, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, mostly or most of these would be coming out that uh, were slightly different. And so you would get a little bit of translation um, coming out as well. The second thing that I would interject into this argument is that not all the words you see, whether it's in NASB, NIV, or any modern English translations, or in the KJV, KJV is actually has a Hebrew word attached to it. Uh, so some words are inserted by the translators to try and sort of of make sense. So um, when you have he, for example, in Daniel 9.27, uh, and it shows up, uh, I think, twice, and both of those words are not taken back to a specific Hebrew word. So they've been inserted to try and make sense of the Hebrew that it was written. And so we have to be sometimes careful with some of the wording. If it doesn't have a Hebrew word, it's an interpretive fill. It may be an accurate fill or it may not be. And you'd have to um, um, you, you would have to, uh, I guess, really do a study for yourself to see whether or not you, you agree with that specific translation or not with the inserted sort of words. So for one week um, is a specific one week, um, which is, you know, seven years. And the word one in the King James Version Bible is, uh, you know, properly means united or alone or altogether. Um, so it is kind of just a choice of the translation and interpretation of, of the word. Um, I think the one seven uh, in the midst of the seven, there is one week that is preserved that is going to complete uh, all prophecy, that is going to complete um, all things that need to be done in, in, in this age. And that uh, shows up uh, earlier in Daniel 9. Um, wherein it's talking about the weeks of the years. And so no matter how you're going to interpret the words that should be used in it, you're going to um, need to go back to the original part of the passage for, for the context. So um, the wording, and I'm just, uh, I'm going to uh, bring up uh, the, the passage here. It says 70 weeks 
weeks are determined upon thy people, upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make uh, an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision uh, and prophecy to anoint the most holy. So that one week, that uh, single week that's being reference is is part of the 70 but only 69 of those weeks are filled and then there's this one week that is remainder where all of these other things uh, as part of the holy covenant will be fulfilled and so i think that's the context that that is being talked about so you have to understand different sources you have to understand uh, that not all the words are directly related to um to the to a Hebrew word, and that words that were used in the time of King James sometimes don't have the same con connotation as what we have today. So you kind of have to go back to the meaning that is used in in the context of the King James or the NASB or NIV to uh, get the source word for what that meaning is and what the translators were trying to do. At the end of the day. Uh, you know, translating from Hebrew to uh, English or Greek to English is is a very difficult thing and sometimes a little bit subjective. And I think, you know, if I had my druthers on how it was done, they would have made the Bible longer and put in more words so that they could actually put in the full context of the meaning of the words in, in a lot of cases so that you know, it's a little bit more easy to to, to understand. Um, so hopefully, I hopefully I answered that question. And I know it's a sort of a complex issue, and it and it does in 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 a certain way change the meaning. But you're still talking about that one seven of of years that have been reserved for the end time, and we know it's the end time because the end in in, in Daniel nine twenty six is the Hebrew word. Uh, cats, meaning the end times or the latter days. So I, I think we have to sort of read that in that kind of context of what was said previous, because that provides the, the information in both in, in both translations. They're really great information. Thank you for sharing all that. And we will move on to our next question. It comes from Victor. And Victor asks, what happens after a Christian dies? Will they be in a sleep mode until the judgment day or actively alive in paradise? Thank you. So if I understand the question right, it was what happens when a Christian dies? And uh, a Christ, when a Christian dies, we're told that we sleep. And we're told that over and over and over uh, until the time of our resurrections. Um, whereas if you're not a Christian and you're not saved or you're, uh, you're, you're not part of Israel, you're going to be, be uh, resurrected, uh, at the end of the millennium. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what does that sleep state sort of mean? And I would sort of slice it a little bit and say, what we also know is that when somebody dies the spirit goes back to heaven from where it was received and the soul and the body 
is is what stays here in the ashes thereof and so the soul and the body is the oikotarian dwelling place for the spirit and it merges with the soul that only god and jesus can separate so what happens in heaven with that spirit one presumes it's still kind of a sleep-like mode but some people would say no that's the the body part um, and that you would be alive in in heaven I guess that's possible. We don't really get a scripture that that tells us that. So I kind of lean to what I know what the script what scripture says, and I would say that our spirit is in some sort of stasis mode in uh, in in heaven, and uh, Jesus referenced this mode as sleep. And even when he re- resurrected Lazarus, uh, when he was talking about Lazarus sleeping. Um, it was rather confusing for the people that were with him, but he was referencing Lazarus was already dead. And But that's just one example, and there's lots of examples throughout the Bible. So uh, that's what happens when we die. Uh, that's what ha- happens when humans die. That's not necessarily what happens to the Rephaim or the Nephilim, whose disembodied spirits were counterfeit spirits, and they're not permitted to sleep and they're uh, going to roam the earth or they're going directly to the abyss and the sides of the abyss as Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 14 talk about for the terrible ones. Um, and in the occult belief is then why they have all of their rituals for their dead kings is to somehow to parade them, put them on a boat, help guide them and protect them to go to their heaven in Hades or Sheol uh, where their gods uh, are believed to uh, reign from in their belief system. Um, so there's a difference between um, the Nephilim and the Raphaim and humans. So that would be the only reason why I'm sort of laying that out so that there's no confusion. So again, hopefully I've, I've answered the question. That's what happens biblically um, from what I've, I've learned in research as to what happens to a Christian when a Christian dies. Yeah, thank you very much for answering that one. So it's one that many people share. Uh, moving on to the next question, comes from Michael Fisher. What is the reasoning for King Charles' second coronation from a secret society point of view? It's 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 rather standard. So what happens is that in the succession, and it usually happens at a death as opposed to an abdication, but seemingly you would do the same thing at an abdication is you need to transfer power instantaneously so that there's not rebellions and rivals and you need to consolidate that power very, very quickly. And then you have a royal ritual complete with oaths based on the Mount Hermon system of oaths and the angels of Harem Anathema that swore the oath to create the giants and to carry it out to the end and where the king's receive their divine right to rule from so there's a and i cover off in in my my new book when i get into the kings of jerusalem uh, and the king of jerusalem title and the crowning of those kings of jerusalem in the time of the crusades and by the way it's uh, king philippe bourbon who has the current uh, king of jerusalem title and they look at jerusalem as being their rightful inheritance because of the scion or grafted in bloodlines that include the Benjamites and noting Joshua awarded Jerusalem 
in uh, the book of Joshua at the time of the Exodus. And so they believe in their system that their Antichrist will be crowned with the king of Jerusalem. And so that's the Anjou. One of the Anjou claims to the throne. There's two other claims that um, are, are, are out there from the Anjou as well. And in that time, um, they made it very, very, very clear that the kings would be first crowned in a small priory on the rock of Zion. And then um, later they would be um, in, a, in a royal ritual um, crowned in another abbey that was in Bethlehem and the birthplace of, of Jesus and uh, the, the Notre, Notre Dame uh, Cathedral of, of, uh, of, of, of Bethlehem. And so that's another example of how this this whole thing comes down through history is there's a way and a process and a continuation of their authorized rule on earth as it comes down to uh, the kings of today. So one was to ensure that there would be the first uh, anointing, um, that there would be proper transfer of power and then they have to honor the pantheon of gods that they worship and so anything that's oath-based is you can pretty much bet that they're not uh, doing an oath to the god of the bible they're doing uh, an oath to the god of their genealogies and uh, they do that to honor the pantheon of god because it's what polytheism does so uh, that's why there's two it always has been that way and it doesn't really matter which sort of monarchy that you go to. It's a general sort of rule of thumb because it all goes back to the same uh, belief system and the same authority transfer system and the same bloodline system that comes right from the Rephaim after the flood and the Nephilim before the flood. They're really great points. All right, we have about seven minutes left. Uh, maybe we'll get through one more and then... And we'll be able to get to all of the questions that we don't get to tonight next month. Thank you so much, everybody, for all of these really great questions. The last one that we'll be answering tonight is from Gina. Hi, is there a scripture about a prophet and the ever-growing tongue? I thought I heard about that. Have you read about the ever-growing tongue? I am not familiar with that, but it sounds like it might be a problem. <laughs> uh, okay, I lied. That's not um, the last question. Yeah, no. To tonight. <laughs> I know I had, I've read about it in the scripture. I don't remember exactly what it was. It was called the Ever New Tongue, and it was about a prophet who kept getting his tongue cut off, and it would grow back so that he could keep, keep sharing the gospel. But interesting. Uh, moving on to the next one comes from Michael. Your thoughts, if you get baptized as a Catholic, Seventh-day Adventist, Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, or any other, does it make a difference if you believe in the God, Creator, or do you need to get baptized again? Well, I I think uh, if you're baptized in the spirit of of God, the Creator, and Jesus, the Messiah, and the Holy Spirit, um, then that's all you need. But if one was not sort of spiritually comfortable with the church that they were in and 
they wanted to do it again, I think that would be fine as well. Um, but I, I really rely on the spirit of what you're doing and the Alpha Omegas, they know what the spirit is and they know what was in your mind and, and who you were praying to. But if you have any doubts, you can get baptized again. I, and I think uh, a lot of people, um, particularly if they're baptized and, and a child, uh, you know, choose to be baptized again and then in probably the domination that they have uh, chosen so i think that you know from uh, a non-minister's perspective is 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 perfectly perfectly acceptable so but if it was done in the in 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 the spirit of what you think was right then that's fine if not then get baptized again excellent well thank you so much brother gary for joining us for this 48th ask me anything this does mark our four years the end of our four years of Ask Me Anything, so I guess next month we'll be beginning our fifth year of Ask Me Anything, and all the questions, they continue to develop, all of the information that you share continues to develop, and I, you know, you are a human being like all of us, and your research just continues to get deeper and deeper, so thank you so much for joining with us and sharing that, uh, noting that this is the end of the fourth year together, doing the Ask Me Anything, <laughs> what are some of the the best questions that you think that you've had oh man i don't know whether i'd be i don't know whether i could actually rank that and you know there's so many questions um i think i think all you know i actually think all the questions are great it's because it's the spirit of the question i think you know people are on a quest unlike you know generations past with a passion to learn more about what's in the bible and what's going on in this world so that they can better put on their armor and they want to know so to me all the questions are are are, are very very good um i guess my passion though is is you know i do like uh prophetic questions so i love to get into that and i also love to get into some of the um little known details in the bible in the old testament on things you know like the teraphim was uh you know a great one and i know i got a lot of emails on that thinking you know they never really considered teraphim and what it was and how that might be connected to the end times. so it's those kinds of questions that uh if i do get a little bit passionate about then that's that's more what it's about yeah we definitely love your answers to all the questions it's really uh, crazy how much depth you can go into in each of these questions that I've only considered on surface level. So thank you so much for you know taking us down the rabbit trails with you. And uh, speaking of, of rabbit trails, why don't we plug your book in one more time? Where can people go to get in a copy of your awesome book, The Genesis 6 Conspiracy and Part 2? You'll be able to get both when I have uh, the website updated. Uh, to the Genesis6conspiracy.com. That's Genesis6, the number 6conspiracy.com. I'll put an excerpt of, of all of the chapters up as well for part two. And uh, from that website, you can also buy a book, which is uh, you go over to the Buy Now page, and from the Buy Now page, you have a few options that will come up. One will be to buy a signed copy. And if you live in Canada, there's a Canada page. If you live in um, the U.S., there's a U.S. page. Anywhere, anywhere else in the world, there's a page for you as well. It's the overseas page. And uh, 
just click on the appropriate page wherever you live. And if you wanted to also link over and get to the Kindle version, there's a uh, link on that buy page to get the Kindle version if you want a digital copy. There's also links to go over to barnesandnoble.com, amazon.com, and amazon.ca. So that's the fastest, easiest way to, to get a book, but it's also available on most online bookstores as well. And uh, hopefully uh, we'll be back on some more store shelves with the release of the new book that will be hopefully sitting side by side and in, in, in some of the retailers. Yeah, well, that's perfect timing. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you, Brother Gary, again for joining. And we will see you all next month for the beginning of our fifth year of Ask Me Anythings with author and researcher Gary Wayne. Shalom, everyone. Have a great night and God bless. As a bookstore for truth seekers, it's our goal to make ancient manuscripts which were once held captive by secretive institutions available for public consideration. In our generation where wisdom has increased as Daniel the prophet foretold, we have access to many of the testimonies our early church brethren were persecuted for preserving. After being hidden for centuries, these manuscripts have been leaked from various sources throughout the earth and it's our goal to gather these sources into printable form to make available for all who seek the ancient way. If you're looking to deepen your studies of the biblical narrative, find these ancient manuscripts and more at sacredwordpublishing.com.